Good morning, class. For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important. The President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the president. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be president. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ninth episode of the Almost Presidents podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Kevin. And this is our monthly podcast where we talk about American presidential politics through the lens of the loser. So, Kevin, how are things going this month? Uh, not bad. It's, I guess, we just closed out in November. So, you know, we had a bunch of, like, time off, and now now I've got to get back to it for at least another month. So, Yeah, the winter is definitely upon us. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I guess I'm more of like a summer person, so unfortunately, that's a kind of a bummer for me. But yeah, it's about to get real cold, unfortunately. But, you know, I guess Christmas to look forward to, so. Yeah, and a happy holidays to all of our listeners, whatever you may celebrate, if it's Christmas, if it's Hanukkah, if it's Kwanzaa, or if it's nothing, whatever it may be, um, I hope that you all have a happy holiday season. Um, I got to yep. say, the cold has, of course, driven me inside. And uh, I just find myself playing more chess these days. I'm trying to get better. Nice. I played on uh, ch- chess.com. Got the app on my phone. It's also kind of a good little thing to do to kind of decompress during my press. Nice. And uh, I just found out this new feature about it last night that I'm totally hyped about because I I always want to set aside time to read books about chess to get better at it. But I just always wind up reading other stuff. It's just, it's just, it's, Chess, like I would consider chess a hobby of mine, but it's not something that I read up on. Yeah, but there's gotcha. this feature on chess.com. So for all of you who are on there who might not know about this, you can actually replay your games. So like, if you finish out a game, you can go and you can watch a step at a time. Like You can hit a button that will show you move for move for move for move, and it'll show you all the different attacks that you could have done and stuff like that. And I'm finding that it's I'm finding that it's helping me a lot to just learn better ways of of attacking because I'm I'm very one dimensional with the way I attack. I kind of try and close out the game with my rooks most of the time. And I just got to get a lot more diverse with that so that I can take on better bots because the ones I'm facing currently are like level 1200, 1400, I think is the highest I can beat. And chess nerds will know what I'm talking about, but uh, hopefully I'll be able to improve. Yeah. So I'm actually going to go a little bit more uh, lowbrow on you. Uh, I just kind of got into Super Smash Bros. Obviously, I've already like played a bunch of times, but I finally been like playing it consistently. And uh, that's kind of what I've been doing with, I guess, I'm stuck at home kind of time. So. And what system are you playing that on the Switch or the Switch? The yep. Switch. Okay. Switch. The new one. So the new one. Yeah. I'm trying. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I know. I've heard from some people there are ways that you can kind of like rig it so you get all the characters so you don't have to like do all the different things to get the right match and like earn the character but right um, go through the whole spirits thing that seems to never yeah i haven't figured that out so i'm just trying to like earn all my characters and stuff you know i have some of the ones that i want but still trying to trying to work on that well you'll have to show me because i'd be interested the the one move that i was trying to add to my repertoire was being able to hit someone once you knock them off the map jump off and just slam them down so that they lose a life well i, I yeah. don't know the, i don't know the technical term for that like, i think they call it spiking i, I haven't quite spiking, landed okay. it yet yeah it's kind of like i think I, I don't know if every character is really good for it but yeah i've been trying to land it i mean i'm a yoshi player myself so you know i think he does okay. have a spike move that you can use um so i've been trying to land it but no luck yet. I'm not. I'm not super great at it. So because I feel like with Bowser, if you do that butt slam, I've seen a lot of people try it and miss, and then you basically just send yourself off the map and die. So well, yeah. You 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 don't want to use one of those ones because then you die. Usually first, actually. You oh. want to use like it's okay. usually like an. Uh, well, I don't know if I want to get into the controls, but it's usually like an A down, so that you don't move down. Only the other person does. Okay. I, I believe that's right, but. Well, look, that stuff is serious. I mean, just as serious as chess and kind of knowing how to diversify your game, also knowing what types of characters you prefer. I mean, I don't know about you. I'm more of like a distance to mid-range type of fighter. Like, I think everybody kind of starts out with Kirby, at least at some point, because he always f- floats his way back. But yeah, I kind of like seem to be the like the 
go-to beginner player. Yeah, and for me, I don't like to get too up close and personal. I don't know about you, so that's why characters like Link, Duck Hunt, I'll play as if I'm playing on a team with somebody else because if you just play as Duck Hunt alone, you're pretty much getting hunted the whole time and it's hard to get off any moves. But if you can kind of camp out on the map and just throw those tin cans that blow up, uh, you you can do some damage. Yeah. Yeah, I play as Yoshi and I get right into the mix every time. Yeah, so I, I don't touch Link. I'm not a big fan of Link. We'll have to play sometime soon. Yeah, maybe live stream it or something. Yeah, yeah. See if our listeners would be into that. <laughs> Before we get into the episode, I did just want to plug the person behind the beautiful art for this month's episode. Her Instagram handle is at Bookish and Ballgowns. She, in addition to doing amazing art, as you'll see if you are listening to us on Spotify or if you check out any of our socials, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram if you haven't already. But it's amazing what she did for us. We were really happy with the way that it came out. So check out her page for more art. She's also a bookstagrammer like we do at the end of our podcast as well as on our social media. And then I, I do it on my personal page as well. So always nice to run into a fellow bookstagrammer. So check that out as well if you're looking for something to read. But definitely go give her a follow. Quite Quite some impressive work that we were definitely really proud to have represent our episode for this month. But with all that being said, why don't we get to this month's episode? So today we're going to be diving into part nine of a multi-part series on Bobby Kennedy's historic 1968 run for president. If you haven't checked out the previous episodes in the series and you want to go back and start at the beginning of the story, feel free to put this episode on pause and go back and check those out. We will be right here when you get back. That is for all of you here who are caught up and ready for the next installment in our series. Let's go ahead and get started. So last episode, we described President Lyndon Johnson's landslide victory over Republican presidential nominee Barry Goldwater in the 1964 election. And to be specific, Johnson picked up 43.1 million votes to Goldwater's 27.2 million, giving Johnson an electoral vote total of 486 to Goldwater's total of 52. So it wasn't like one of those Trump landslides. It was like a real landslide. The Senate leaned Democrat by a margin of 68 seats to 32. Among those headed to Washington was one freshman senator from New York named Robert F. Kennedy. Considering how completely and historically LBJ had crushed his opponent, it was time for LBJ to celebrate how much ass LBJ had just kicked. Nothing more and nothing less. And yet he still made time to make a phone call out to congratulate a fellow Democrat who had won a seat in Congress. Quote, let's stay as close together as JFK would want us to. Ain't nobody going to divide us. I'm proud of you, said the newly reelected president. Thanks for your help, replied the man on the other end of the line. It made a hell of a difference. The man LBJ had called was, of course, our Bobby Kennedy. This is a strange phone call in the context of the hostile relationship that existed between these two guys, and it certainly did nothing to put an end to the mutual hatred that they felt towards each other, as things were only going to escalate in the coming years. What it was, though, was the only time LBJ would get a thank you from Bobby for campaigning with him and sending his vice president to New York to do the same. Joe Kennedy didn't raise his sons to remember to say please and thank you. He raised them to do a lot of things, but not that. Also, Bobby wouldn't be caught publicly displaying his gratitude towards a man he viewed as his enemy. But despite all of this, they both belong to the same party, the Democrats, who are in control of the White House, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. As we discussed in the last episode, these majorities were due in no small part to the major legislation that had been passed, such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and LBJ's War on Poverty. These were blockbuster pieces of legislation that helped a lot of people, but they weren't cure-alls for the tumultuous times. They represented a step in the right direction, but there was still a ways to go. So what was RFK's role in all of this, and what did he accomplish during his time on Capitol Hill? The simple answer to that question is not a lot. Evan Thomas recounts that during his time in the Senate, he didn't pass a single piece of major legislation. And considering the level of power he had as JFK's attorney general, being a mere freshman senator, even from a great state like New York, was a considerable step down for RFK and something he'd have to get used to. 
No longer did he have the president's ear and have a say in the prevailing foreign and domestic issues of the day. If anything, he'd have to follow his younger brother Ted's lead. Edward Kennedy was serving in the Senate at the same time as a Massachusetts senator, filling JFK's old seat. He knew much more than Bobby about how to navigate the Senate and its backroom negotiations and incurring of favors. And this culture of backroom negotiations and cloakroom conversations, cutting deals, all that stuff, these were things that frustrated RFK as well as the pace that things moved in Congress. It wasn't nearly fast enough for the man of action that we all know Bobby Kennedy to be. Also, he lacked patience and his behavior was often unpredictable among his colleagues. He was quick to pick up on the fact that in many ways, his view of power now came from the outside looking in. When thinking back on those times, Ted said of his brother Bobby that he, quote, understood power well. He knew that there was an inside Senate and an outside Senate, and that his fast-blossoming idealism made him an outsider. When it came time to vote on legislative issues, due to the fact that roll call was determined alphabetically, and all of our alphabet enthusiasts out there will know that E comes before R, Robert Kennedy often looked to Edward Kennedy's yay or nay on a particular issue, and followed suit with whatever his brother had said. He did use, however, his prestige as a Kennedy to bring attention to issues such as hunger. For example, if he attended a hearing on it, it was inevitable that the press corps would follow just based on his name, and this is something that could help bring wider awareness around the issue itself. But becoming a, to quote the title of Robert A. Caro's third book on Lyndon Johnson, Master of the Senate, this was not something that was Bobby's fate. He was meant to strive for something more. And who are we kidding? There were already people who were running this rumor mill that RFK was just using his position in the Senate as a launching pad for a run at the presidency in 1968, but we won't drop any spoilers about that just yet. In the meantime, however, RFK did use his seat in the Senate as a platform to fight poverty. He also began surrounding himself with like-minded thinkers on the issue, including his legislative assistant, Adam Malinsky, who... Kevin, get this, he has this tattoo-worthy, in my opinion, poster in his office that reads in Spanish, and we'll just say it in English here, that, quote, when shit is gold, the poor will have no assholes. So it's no wonder that if this is the company that RFK is keeping, that he emerged as a champion of the impoverished that we're going to see him do in coming episodes as well as this one. So, Kevin, as of this recording, neither of us is inked up. So this would be a pretty serious first tattoo. I mean, there's a there's a lot of text here, and I mean, so I'd have to think. I mean, there's, you 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 probably want to make sure you get it right as far as placement goes. So, if you were to get this tattoo, where would you put it, and how much money would it take for you to get the English version of it? Uh, I don't know. I feel like uh, face tattoos are all the rage these days, but I don't know if I have enough room on my face for that much text. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah, because I don't think, like, you don't have, like, a, a naturally big forehead, because that might be the one that doesn't. Uh, yeah. Although, if you have long bangs, it might just say assholes. Like, that might be all that's visible, and that might piss people <laughs> off. I feel like yeah. I feel like it, it lends itself almost to, like, dual bicep tattoos. Like, you get on one bicep when shit is gold, and on the other, the poor will have no assholes. Um, yeah. <laughs> if, I, although, if I had bigger biceps, I might consider that, but. Yeah, they were, we're both kind of string beans. And that's all right. But um, I think if you were to get this and for some reason only the bicep with the poor will have no assholes was showing, that would definitely raise a lot of questions. So I think you just got to be strategic. But I, I don't know. Like as I'm thinking about it, like I'm envisioning like almost street graffiti style font. The words are gold and there's like a black outline behind it. And if you have like a pile of gold that's like stacked up so that it almost looks like a pile of shit but it's actually gold i mean it would definitely take a good tattoo artist but you know i think you just watch enough episodes of ink master you figure out who you get to uh do this tattoo but i think we are kind of running away with this here so um returning to rfk's stance on poverty given the privileged life that bobby led he was no stranger to poverty strangely enough um and unlike many positions in power he didn't just advocate for reforms that were aimed to help the poor class that he viewed only abstractly bobby wanted to be in it in experiencing this poverty firsthand himself 
so that he could really get a sense of just what's going on here. So late in 1965, Bobby goes on this trip through South America where he really experiences what poverty is like abroad. He took the time to walk among the poor and destitute, literally, interacting with their children, and oftentimes the smell just of sewage and all that stuff was just so unbearable that his entourage kept his distance, but not Bobby. He wasn't that type. And this behavior would follow him upon his return to America, and it would fill him with this kind of almost righteous anger that could be felt by someone who had gotten as up close and personal with the the suffering of others as he had. But how Bobby perceived poverty in a sense was like not really important because people in positions of power all over American history, you know, they've, they've had all kinds of views about it, but most don't do nearly enough to see to the needs of the poorer classes in America who were oftentimes minorities and certainly were during this time. Bobby Kennedy, to quote Rocco in Boondock Saints 2, All Saints Day, another great movie you should watch. Bobby was a doer, not a talker. And in the fight against poverty, it was in the neighborhood of Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, New York, that he really took action. At the time, Bedford-Stuyvesant had a population of around half a million people who were predominantly black and Puerto Rican. And it could hardly be said that Bedford-Stuyvesant, or Bed-Stuy for short, was a place that you'd want to settle down and raise your family. The local school system was horrible, and the vast majority of Bed-Stuy's residents were high school dropouts who really didn't have much prospects for the future. And so, as a result, criminal activity was commonplace, as well as drug use. There was a large presence of gangs, which made the streets a dangerous place to be, and much of the housing there was, quote, dilapidated and insufficient. And this is the one that I almost thought was the most messed up. Nowhere in America had a higher rate of infant mortality from lead poisoning. Not to mention, as we talked about in our last episode, Bed-Stuy had been rocked by riots that were in response to this slang of James Powell, who was a 15-year-old black boy, by an off-duty cop on July 16, 1964. And these were riots which, as we said, erupted all over Harlem, and they went into Bed-Stuy. They resulted in 276 arrests and massive amounts of proper damage, which wound up costing around $350,000 at the time. And so all this social unrest, which is putting it mildly, put Bed-Stuy in the national spotlight. But before long, people moved on. That is except for the people who actually had to live in Bed-Stuy day to day, who were stuck in this cycle of generational poverty and desperation that most people can only imagine. In the summer of 1964, race riots such as what had happened in Bed-Stuy were happening in major cities all over America. And... Lyndon Johnson's response to this tide of racial tension was his famous Great Society legislative agenda, which was a set of government programs that targeted healthcare, education, and welfare. And really, it was it was a big expansion of the American welfare state. The Great Society was in many ways comparable to FDR's New Deal. Um, you know, some listeners will probably know LBJ. Basically, the only person LBJ idolized more than himself may have been FDR. Um, and in this in passing this legislation, LBJ would more or less achieve his vision of becoming the next FDR. It was responsible for getting many millions of Americans out of poverty. Um, but in Bobby Kennedy's mind, the Great Society wasn't enough. There were still problems facing American society that this Great Society program couldn't fix. The riots springing up across the country weren't just in response to poverty, poor health care, or lack of education. And this is why the Great Society programs didn't really ease the tensions very much. There was deep-seated racial unrest that wasn't going anywhere, and in Bobby's view, couldn't be fixed just by government programs. These programs didn't give the people on the ground in places like Bedford-Stuyvesant a real say in the policy decisions intended to improve their communities. In Kennedy's view, the people who actually lived in these places should get the opportunity to call the shots on how to improve their community and work to rebuild it themselves. Government programs and handouts could really only go so far. In the same way that Kennedy gravitated to the poor and filthy in South America when everyone who was along with him kept their distance, in Bedford-Stuyvesant, he stood at the forefront of innovative experimental new ways to lift the poor out of their situation. 
In early 1966, after making several anti-poverty speeches the previous month, Bobby toured Bedsty on February 4th. An RFK biographer describes what he saw. Quote, Neon signs offered loans and liquor. Forsaken cars rusted in front of boarded-up houses crawling with roaches, rats, and human squatters. Out-of-work fathers congregated on street corners while their children played outdoors in winter without coats. The journalist Jack Newfield, a Bed-Stuy native whose family left with the rest of the whites, remembered Bobby asking, Show me the house where you grew up. The structure was abandoned by then. The block drug-infested. As for Newfield's roots in the rundown neighborhood, Bobby said, quote, I'm jealous of the fact that you grew up in the ghetto. I wish I did. I wish I had that experience. Unquote. It wasn't only the sights of poverty at its worst that made the visit an unpleasant one. With no reason to feel confident in a rich white outsider coming to their rescue, one resident yelled at Bobby, you white politicians come out here and nothing changes. Bobby also took a share of abuse from the local civic leaders. But he wouldn't let their understandable frustration and hesitancy to allow themselves to hope for change stop him. It was time to roll up his sleeves and get to work. To Bobby, what he was setting out to accomplish in Bedford-Stuyvesant was much bigger than its 450,000 citizens. If he could somehow set one of America's worst ghettos on the path to economic, social, and educational success, who's to say this couldn't be achieved in other poor cities across America? The idea was to use government money to pay for job training for the unemployed, offer tax breaks to incentivize big businesses to invest in the community, and to empower the citizens to govern themselves. The leadership situation was at first a delicate one. Community leaders and white businessmen coming in from outside Bed-Stuy needed to work together for the whole thing to work. The only issue was, the business leaders didn't know much about how things were in the ghetto, and what its people wanted and responded to. This could very quickly end up stoking resentments between the two sides, and Bobby couldn't be confident the egos of these confident businessmen could stand the bruising that his did when the community leaders and activists' frustrations over their situation boiled over in meetings. To solve a problem before it started, two separate boards were established within the Bedford-Stuyvesant Corporation. One made up of community leaders and activists would handle jobs and come up with ideas for improving their community, and the other, made up of white businessmen, would provide the funding and bring in industry which would provide jobs. Visiting frequently as the project unfolded, Bobby witnessed firsthand an impoverished community begin to recover. People were put to work cleaning their streets and repairing their sidewalks. A piece in New York Magazine described the change taking place. The journalist describes, quote, Driving past the brownstones, savoring the calm of the peace, one can see an immense and important fact. The blight of urban decay is not inevitable. There are alternatives. Something is happening in Bedford-Stuyvesant. As a result of the social and economic experimentation that took place in Bed-Stuy, they weren't the only community where something was happening. The accomplishments of Bobby Kennedy and the Bedford-Stuyvesant Corporation inspired similar projects to take place in other poor neighborhoods in America. The idea of bringing community and business leaders together to bring money and jobs into low-income areas and not relying solely on the federal government changed the game and serves as a model to this day for community development projects. But if, if you're anything like us, I'm sure at different points throughout this series, you've had a hard time imagining the son of one of the wealthiest men in America caring this much for the have-nots. It's even harder to believe that accepting the fact that he did care, that he was able to extend this level of empathy and compassion towards him that he did. Although at the same time, thinking it through, maybe it's not that surprising that this man who attended the most expensive schools, was worth millions of dollars himself. He sailed yachts, he lived in mansions, and he never wanted for anything in the world and probably never would, was shocked to find out that there were people who did not have that same experience or anything close to it. There were people living in the same country as him who were living in these states of destitution, filth, and poverty that as rich and privileged as he was, he literally had to go and see it with his own eyes to truly believe it. And so Bobby Kennedy wasn't done looking poverty in the face. And given his name and the inevitable press coverage that came with it, neither was America. 
When Bobby Kennedy's plane touched down in Mississippi in the spring of 1967, members of the Ku Klux Klan were among the crowd that had gathered to meet him. Isn't that lovely? They showed up with signs that had racial slurs on them, accusing him of being an N-word lover and all this terrible shit. And, you know, of course, that's because it wasn't long ago when Bobby came down to the South for a different reason. But this time he wasn't here to battle these white supremacists that were fighting the Brown versus Board of Education ruling. He was there for a different reason. So news on Capitol Hill of mass starvation taking place in the Mississippi Delta had spurred him and Democratic Senator Joseph Clark of Pennsylvania to fly down there to see for themselves just what was happening in the Mississippi Delta. What they saw was something that you'd expect in a third world country, not America, which is one of the most prosperous countries in the world. Even Bobby, who'd seen all kinds of poverty all over the world at this point, admitted that he had never seen anything quite like this. The people of the Mississippi Delta were literally starving to death. Many of the families that Kennedy and Clark would visit couldn't even afford the $2 charge for food stamps. In desperation, many parents had taken to begging for food so their children wouldn't starve. Among some of the firsthand accounts from people that RFK met were, one, there was this little boy for whom molasses was all that was available to him, so it was the only thing he ate for breakfast and dinner. Of course, there was no lunch. He witnessed 15 people crammed into a tiny shack, which was exposed to the elements and covered in mildew. The only item that appeared in the fridge was a jar of peanut butter. He encountered children that were covered with sores and dressed in rags, many with actual bloated stomachs, indicating just how far their starvation had progressed. There was one boy in particular. He was this one-year-old baby who had one of those bloated stomachs, and he was playing with crumbs on the floor. And this just drew Senator Kennedy over to him for some reason. And Bobby took a seat with the boy and stroked his cheek while the boy just sat there in the dirt and seemed to hardly notice that Bobby was doing this. And this encounter alone just brought Bobby to tears seeing this. His response to what he saw in the Mississippi Delta was powerful. He said, quote, we spent $75 billion a year on armaments and $3 billion a year on dogs. We have to do more for these children who didn't ask to be born into this. <laughs> and I, I really certainly agree with him on that dog's bit. I mean, come on, people. How much do we spend on our dogs now? Like, seriously. What was disturbing, though, was that despite the evidence of this mass starvation being literally right in their faces, there were many people who still denied that the plight of those just barely holding on in the Mississippi Delta was even happening. This perhaps could be because they were black. The governor of Mississippi actually espoused this fiction that the black citizens in his state were all so well fed and everything was going great. And there were journalists that accused Bobby and this other senator of being brainwashed, but Bobby would hear none of it. He was making America's downtrodden, impoverished, and ignored his personal cause, and he was not backing down. Marion Wright, a young civil rights leader, verbalized a sentiment that was surely being felt by many others when they envisioned the kind of man RFK was. With the causes he championed, and the way that he championed them, the vain and ruthless Joe McCarthy communist witch hunter was quickly being re replaced by this man who brought attention to and fought for things and people that actually really mattered, not just abstract communists, but people who were in need. Bobby brought enough evidence of starvation forward that the policy regarding food stamps, which made it impossible for families to afford them, was loosened. Additionally, he got doctors to visit the Mississippi Delta, and they treated the various maladies that were afflicting children, like that one-year-old that he'd had a close encounter with. The amount of attention being brought on the issue put pressure on John Stennis, Mississippi's senator, and this ended up with him proposing a $10 million emergency fund for food and medical care for these people. And what Marion Wright said of him kind of just sums up the way he felt and where he was concerning those people in the Mississippi Delta, and that was, quote, he didn't go away. Taking his experiences in the Mississippi Delta home with him, he told his children at the kitchen table again and again, do you know how lucky you are? 
A compelling passage from Albert Camus that RFK wrote down seems to capture much of his attitudes towards what he saw in places like Bed-Stuy and the Mississippi Delta. It goes like this, quote, Perhaps we cannot prevent this world from being a world in which children are tortured, but we can reduce the number of tortured children. And if you believers don't help us, who else in the world can help us do this? Unquote. Before we wrap up today's episode, there are two more important defining moments we want to touch on from Robert Kennedy's Senate career. You'll forgive me now as we jump back in time to 1966, when RFK met another one of those astounding figures that seems to be a dime a dozen in the mid to late 60s. I'm referring, of course, to Cesar Chavez. It was late 1966 when the two men first met, but it certainly wouldn't be their last encounter. At the time, Bobby was working on the Senate subcommittee on migratory labor when he reluctantly flew to California to meet with a group of striking migrant workers. Their leader was Cesar Chavez, founder of the United Farm Workers of America. In Delano, California, he had been fighting for higher wages and collective bargaining for migrant workers who, as Bobby would find out, were being exploited at the hands of their bosses and the local government. The largely Filipino workers were laboring in the fields beside their children, making under minimum wage. Their housing had no running water or heat, and RFK deemed the whole situation to be worse than what he saw in Mississippi. The situation on the ground was such that the migrant workers were organizing strikes and being arrested by the police because they might riot. This elicited anger from Bobby and led him to say one of my personal favorite Bobby Kennedyisms during a March hearing. He said, this is the most interesting concept. How can you arrest somebody if they haven't violated the law? And the local sheriff answered, they're ready to violate the law. To which Bobby replied, I suggest that during the luncheon period that the sheriff and district attorney read the Constitution of the United States. Despite his allegiance to the state of New York and his frequent absences from Washington, RFK knew he had to help these people. According to labor leader Dolores Huerta, Quote, Robert didn't come and tell us what was good for us. He came to us and asked us two questions. All he said was, what do you want and how can I help? That's why we loved him. Unquote. RFK ended up making an immediate connection with the strikers leader, Cesar Chavez, and helped him raise money and support unionizing among the workers. An admirer of the style of activism practiced by men like Gandhi, Chavez participated in his own kind of hunger strike in 1968 to protest an Arizona law preventing farm workers from organizing. A hunger strike which was ended when Bobby Kennedy flew to California and attended a mass with Chavez to signify the end of a 24-day hunger strike. In the years after Bobby Kennedy's assassination, Chavez would go on to lead strikes that down the pike would result in a piece of legislation passed in California in 1975 that gave workers the right to boycott and collective bargain. It is clear from encounters like this that Bobby Kennedy was magnetically drawn towards people like him who fought for change and for a better world, just as they were magnetically drawn to him. Just as Bobby's trip to Latin America demonstrated his desire to fix the ills of society, not just domestically, but abroad as well, his trip to apartheid South Africa continued to push his vision further. It was also the place where he delivered one of his most famous speeches. But before Bobby Kennedy's plane touches down this time in South Africa, let's talk a little bit about apartheid and let's break into like what it was and where the conflict surrounding it was at leading up to and during this time that RFK visited South Africa. Because honest, to be quite honest with you, I didn't know much about South African apartheid before going into this episode. So now that I've educated myself a little bit, I'll uh, educate you the same if you aren't super familiar with it. Um, so similar to the segregationist policies that have been taking place in the U.S., black people in South Africa were also being oppressed and marginalized by this white ruling class. The word apartheid quite literally translates to apartness, and what it boiled down to was essentially this ideology and a system of legislation that backed it up, which gradually stripped black people of more and more of their basic freedoms as the multitude of injustices against them just continue to stack up and grow worse over time. These racial policies would be enforced by the National Party, which gained power in South Africa in 1948. 
Though they were the ones enforcing these policies, segregationist policies in South Africa existed long before the National Party came to power. White supremacy and all of its ugly byproducts were prevalent in South Africa since the turn of the 20th century, when the 1913 Land Act forced Black Africans to relocate onto reserves and even more damaging, it took away their ability to earn a living as sharecroppers. Black South Africans who made up the majority of South Africa were forced to live separate from white people and use separate public facilities from white people. Does that sound at all familiar to anything? Additionally, the white leadership in South Africa also strove to separate black Africans from each other. And this was a strategy that was employed because separating them would make it more difficult for them to organize and organizing would have them, you know, would increase the possibility of them attaining political power that could be used as a threat to the national party. So not only did they separate the black Africans from the whites, but they separated the black Africans from each other. So here's just a taste of some of the laws that were passed by the 1950s from this article that I found on history.com that was all about South African apartheid. Marriage between a white person and a person of another race was illegal, obviously. Through a variety of land acts, like we talked about earlier, over 80% of land in South Africa was set aside for whites to use. And just think back to the differences in population. I mean, black Africans were the vast majority, and yet 80% of this land was set aside for whites to use. Non-whites were required to carry documentation on them to authorize their presence in these areas that were 80% of South Africa. Non-whites could not access the same facilities in the public as whites. Non-whites were not allowed to participate in government. And starting in 1961, which was five years before Bobby Kennedy agreed to accept this invitation to go to South Africa, non-whites had started to be forcibly removed from their land. So this removal really just resulted in them going into deep poverty and destitution. And according to this article, between 1961 and 1994, 3.5 million people were removed from their lands. So this wasn't anything that was even remotely isolated as far as the incidents went. And the rolling back of all these apartheid laws really wouldn't take place until Nelson Mandela was finally successful in working with this South African government to create a new constitution for South Africa. And that was in the 1990s. This achievement would also go on to win him the Nobel Prize. But that was a ways away. At the moment, in the 1960s, the non-white majority in South Africa was beginning to oppose these cruel and unjust laws that were being forced on them by their government. Similar to in America, these opposition groups varied as far as what their philosophies were on violence or non-violence as the better political tool to use when you're trying to enact change. But regardless of their own beliefs on the subject, their government was not opposed to using violence to squash anything that they viewed as a potential threat to their overall supremacy. In 1960, 67 black Africans were killed and 180 wounded when the police opened fire on a group of unarmed protesters. And the way that they were showing their protest was by arriving at a police station without the passes they were, they were required to travel with. And this was an act of peaceful protest that invited their immediate arrest but what resulted was this overwhelming show of murderous force on the part of the government. And this was something that led to the militarization of several anti-apartheid groups, you know, similar to Malcolm X's idea of when somebody goes to hit you, you hit them back. You know, there were these groups that opposed apartheid who saw violence as a potential political tool. And one of these groups was led by Nelson Mandela Soon after this, in 1963, Mandela was imprisoned for his involvement in leading the, and I hope that I'm pronouncing this right, Umkanto Wisizwe, which translates to Spear of the Nation. And he would remain in prison until 1990, very long time to be in prison for Nelson Mandela. You would think that with America in the midst of its own fight for civil rights, that its government would acknowledge in some way the plight of the black South Africans. Perhaps maybe even draw a comparison between what the Kennedy and then Johnson administration claimed to champion so boldly across the Atlantic. Unfortunately, this just wasn't the case. And among first world countries, it wasn't only the US that showed little support for those fighting against apartheid. 
Margaret Marshall, who was a student activist member of the National Union of South African Students, or the NUSAS, was adamant about bringing the plight of South Africans to the world stage. But despite her group's efforts to invite prominent figures to come to South Africa and witness firsthand what was happening there, she said, the world seemed to have ignored us. No one came. That, of course, would all change when the NUSAS invited Bobby Kennedy to deliver a speech at the University of Cape Town in June 1966. The occasion was a day of affirmation of academic and human freedom. It was an event the student activists had organized to emphasize their commitment to opposing the oppression of black South Africans. RFK accepted their invitation and flew to South Africa, where he was greeted by not a single government official. They viewed his visit as just another Kennedy publicity stunt and aimed to hamstring it by canceling the visas of the journalists who intended to, co- to accompany him on the trip. This wasn't to say that there was no welcoming committee at all. Shortly after landing, Kennedy was swarmed by a massive crowd, among them Margaret Marshall, only 20 years old at the time. She had ascended rapidly in the leadership of the NUSAS due to the fact that many of the men in the group had been thrown in prison by the government. Her short time serving as Bobby Kennedy's guide would change her life forever. On June 6, 1966, on the Day of Affirmation of Academic and Human Freedom, he delivered what some considered his greatest speech. It it really is worth being read or listened to in its entirety, but here are some highlights from it. He opened the speech by saying, I came here because of my deep interest and affection for a land settled by the Dutch in the mid-17th century then taken over by the British, and at last independent, a land in which the native inhabitants were at first subdued, but relations with whom remain a problem to this day, a land which defined itself as a hostile frontier, a land which has tamed rich natural resources through the energetic application of modern technology, a land which once imported slaves, and now must struggle to wipe out the last traces of that former bondage. I refer, of course, to the United States of America. And I really like how Chris Matthews, in his book, Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit, which you know I, I have my issues with, but this particular part where he's analyzing the opening of this speech that Kevin just read from, I like the way he writes about it. He says, quote, with this perspective matching of histories, that of his own country with that of his hosts, he offered a moral humility expected least of all by those defenders of the country's system of white supremacy who'd criticized his coming to South Africa in the first place. Specifically, this is the part that I really like where Matthew says he was setting a marker down. The United States might be further along on its historical course regarding race, yet that did not put it on a higher national pedestal. And so this was a clear indicator that Bobby would do what his country perhaps could not or maybe would not when it came to these struggles that were taking place you know, among these black South Africans, and that was to identify with them and speak to the worthwhile struggle of attaining equal rights for all, regardless of race or religious creed. But Kevin, I'll let you you get back to a few of those other moments from that speech. Yeah, I I think that's right. And I think that's really part of what gives Bobby Kennedy his power as like a speaker and as a a figure is just his ability to like identify with where people are coming from, even though he's so very far from the experience of a real everyday person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. His, his, his way to connect almost in the face of that. Yeah. But um, anyways, here are a couple more great moments in the speech. Quote, for two centuries, my own country has struggled to overcome the self-imposed handicap of prejudice and discrimination based on nationality, social class, or race discrimination profoundly repugnant to the theory and command of our constitution. Even as my father grew up in Boston, signs told him that no Irish need apply. Two generations later, President Kennedy became the first Catholic to head the nation. But how many men of ability had, before 1961, been denied the opportunity to contribute to the nation's progress because they were Catholic or of Irish extraction? How many sons of Italian or Jewish or Polish parents slumbered in slums untaught, unlearned, their potential lost forever to the nation and human race? Even today, what price will we pay before we have assured full opportunity to millions of Negro Americans? In the last five years, we have done more to assure equality to our Negro citizens and to help the deprived, both white and black, than in the hundred years before, but much more remains to be done. 
For there are millions of Negroes untrained for the simplest of jobs, and thousands every day denied their full equal rights under the law. And the violence of the disinherited, the insulted, and the injured looms over the streets of Harlem and Watts and Southside Chicago. But a Negro American trains as an astronaut, one of mankind's first explorers into outer space. Another is the chief barrister of the United States government, and doesn't sit on the benches of court. And another, Dr. Martin Luther King, is the second man of African descent to win the Nobel Peace Prize for his nonviolent efforts for social justice between races. We have passed laws prohibiting discrimination in education, in employment, in housing, but these laws alone cannot overcome the heritage of centuries of broken families and stunted children, and poverty and degradation and pain. So the road towards equality of freedom is not easy, and great cost and danger march alongside us. We are committed to peaceful and nonviolent change, and that is important for all to understand, though all change is unsettling. Still, even in the turbulence of protest and struggle is greater hope for the future, as men learn to claim and achieve for themselves the rights formally petitioned for others. And then, of course, there is possibly the most famous part of the speech. The part where its nickname as the Ripples of Hope speech comes from. Quote, It is from numberless diverse acts of courage and belief that human history is shaped. Each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring. Those ripples build a current that can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. I love that. It almost seems to like spit in the face of anybody's pessimism for the future and for what humanity can do to help out humanity. It's just such an awesome part of that speech. I really love that. It reminds me kind of of the way that Martin Luther King often quotes, I believe it's from the book of Isaiah, the line about how justice will roll down like a mighty stream or, or something. Yeah. Is that in his, um, his, one of his last speeches, the one about uh, the promised land? It, it is, but also he said it a lot. Okay. So it's yeah, in a lot no. of the speeches. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's, that's definitely a good one too. But when we're, when we're looking at Bobby Kennedy's track record, at least for this episode, you know, he's got Bed-Stuy behind him, the Mississippi Delta, the labor unrest in Delano, California, and of course, this mythic trip to South Africa. These all clearly show that we have an American politician here who was essentially born into American royalty, who had finally stepped out of this shadow that was cast by his slain older brother and grounded himself in issues facing America as well as the world that really mattered and demanded attention and action from all those who were in positions of power to actually do something about it. And it wouldn't be long now before RFK identified it himself a man who could do that and who could climb to the highest seat of power, just like his brother, and affect those changes for himself. Because he had seen firsthand the extreme poverty, racism, and labor exploitation that were taking place in his country and showed that he wouldn't just turn away from it. So maybe, just maybe, he could be the one to face it head on and in a way that no American statesman ever had. Unfortunately, while we all know how this story ends, which is with Bobby Kennedy lying in a pool of his own blood in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel in California, he still was building this legacy that would inspire many of the people who were young then when they met him and inspired them to believe that they can make a difference. Take Margaret Marshall, the young African anti-apartheid student activist who said of Kennedy's visit to South Africa, quote, he reminded us, me that we were not alone, that we were part of a great and noble tradition, the reaffirmation of nobility in every human person. We all had felt alienated. It felt to me that what I was doing was small and meaningless. He put us back into the great sweep of history. Even if it's just a tiny thing, it will add up. He reset the moral compass, not so much by attacking apartheid, but by simply talking about justice and freedom and dignity. Words that none of us had heard in, it seemed like, an eternity. He didn't go through the white liberals. He connected straight by standing on a car. Nobody had done that. How simple it was. He was not afraid. And so there you have just one of the many ripples of hope, you know, that came from Bobby Kennedy's 
uh, you know, splash in the ocean of American and world politics if we could follow that metaphor a little longer. Next time on the Almost Presidents podcast, we return to the battlefields of Vietnam in the build-up to 1968. The war that was growing increasingly unpopular among American citizens and GIs alike rages on, becoming a critical talking point for candidates in the race for the presidency. All this and more on the next episode of the Almost Presidents podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. All right. And if you're still with us, you know what time it is. It's time for our monthly book recommendations. So, Kevin, what are you reading this month? I picked up a book that is actually in a genre, kind of in a kind of genre that I actually kind of hate. And one of the really popular examples of this genre was a book called What's the Matter with Kansas by a guy named Thomas Frank. And basically, like, the premise is, like, some liberal journalist is like, we need to figure out why all these conservatives are like so dumb that they're voting for the wrong candidates. And I just, I don't, I, I usually find the tone to be annoying and I find like the conclusions to be kind of shallow, but I found one that I had heard a lot about called Strangers in Their Own Land by R. Lee Russell Hochschild. And I just finished it up and it's, it's a phenomenal book. I thought it was like really uh, well-written, really empathetic. And, it, and it's kind of really just centers the variety of different like stories of the people that this particular person meets. So Arlie Russell Hochschild is a sociologist. And I guess at some point, maybe in like, I don't know the exact date, but maybe in like 2014 or something, she decided to move to Louisiana and just kind of start making friends and talking to people and understand what was going on with like the Tea Party movement, which had kind of blown up at the time. And obviously, you know, she's there for a little, a little while. And 2016 is when Donald Trump gets nominated. So it's a very important time, I guess. And so, you know, she she interviews people, particularly focusing on the issue of um, the environment, because in Louisiana in particular, where she is, the place has been kind of eviscerated by the oil industry. People's like homes are being destroyed and people can't even like swim in or fish in the water anymore because it's just basically poisoned. Um, And she tries to figure out why these people kind of like have the perspective that even though all of this stuff is going on, they ought to defend industry and defend the existence of oil in their state and that sort of thing. So again, really interesting. I, I think most people will agree she takes a pretty like empathetic approach, a pretty understanding approach, um, and she represents people's perspectives really well, I think. That's interesting. So if I get the premise correct, that she's kind of trying to figure out why people in Louisiana are voting for people who aren't representing their interests when it comes to things like the environment and stuff like that, which is what, like you're saying, horrible when it comes to like the oil industry and stuff. Yeah, that's kind of the idea. I mean, like, keep in mind, right, she's talking to a variety of people, they have diverse perspectives. But basically, most of the people she talks to will agree that, you know, the industries that moved into their state have done pretty horrible things to the environment, and that it's pretty like unacceptable. But almost all of them universally will say that the EPA should be completely defunded, right? And like, there should basically be no regulations on these companies that prevent them from doing it. All of these people have reasons for why that's their perspective. And they have a whole, you know, she goes into a lot of people's backstories about like why they feel the way they do. But yeah, that's basically the paradox. She calls it like the great paradox that like she's trying to explore is like, why is this thing destroying your environment around you? But like you defend it. Interesting. Yeah. So I just wrapped up and I already posted it on our social media so you can kind of check out my little blurb, but I've been just so obsessed and haunted by this novel that I felt like I should talk about it on the pod too. I finished reading The Passenger by Cormac McCarthy. This is the first book he's put out in a while. Um, The last one he put out was The Road and the sequel to this is going to come out this month at some point and it's just something that I can't wait until Christmas for. So I'm going to go out and buy it myself, brand new hardback copy of the sequel because this book was just it was astonishing i mean cormac mccarthy is 89 years old and he still got it and i never said that he didn't but if there are people out there that think that an 89 cormac mccarthy is not going to be able to, to produce work that arguably is his best i mean i haven't read his whole bibliography but i was so tremendously impressed by this these people are just crazy and Cormac McCarthy, I mean, he's one of those few like great American novelists that we have out there. And what I mean by that is I have this pet theory that I I really don't even think is a theory. I think it's true that 
novels these days are largely inspired by TV writers' rooms. Like a lot of these thrillers that come out are trying more to imitate what a writer's room is like, as opposed to using the conventions that make a novel so great. So that's why people like Cormac McCarthy are such treasures because they're still around. They're still doing it. I mean, I still remember when we lost Philip Roth, I think in 2018, but this novel is really, I don't envy the person who had to write the blurb for the jacket because I have no idea what I would have said. I mean, I think they did an okay job. The, the premise is this man named Western is like a salvage diver and they come across this plane that was not broken into at all. Everybody in there is dead, but yet somehow the black box and something else is missing from it. And then it just becomes this thing where he kind of takes his form that he's famous for, which is kind of relatively sparse prose without much punctuation, no punctuation marks, which drives some people crazy, but you get used to it. And it's, it's almost like the book marries James Joyce's stream of consciousness style of writing with a narrator that could come out of a Ken Kesey book, like a narrator that, well, two narrators really, that you you really can't trust, but their perspective is all you have. And it's good enough because it's so compelling. So I was obsessed with this book. I was reading a bunch of books at the same time and I put them all down just to power through this. My girlfriend was amazed at how quickly I finished it. So I would definitely, definitely recommend The Passenger by Cormac McCarthy, especially because the sequel is going to drop this month too. So I'm really looking forward to that. Awesome, man. Yeah, Cormac McCarthy is just like, I mean, his books are just like brutal too. Yeah, the the degree of violence in some of his books, like Blood Meridian, of course, No Country for Old Men, is truly astonishing. I wouldn't say that this book really came close to matching that level of violence. It almost seemed like a lot of it were these long conversations between the narrator and other characters, kind of probing into their perspectives about life and death and the universe and the way we treat other people or mistreat other people. So it almost it almost reads at certain points like like a philosophical text, kind of like an old master at his craft is trying to impart some wisdom before he departs the world, which hopefully will not happen anytime soon. Because even if Cormac McCarthy retires from writing, just knowing that he's still out there somewhere makes me happy. Yeah, man. I'm, I can't believe that dude is still kicking, to be honest. 89, and he is sharp as a tack. I mean, like... Yeah. You have to check this book out. And listeners, if this is something that's up your alley, definitely check it out. I mean, Kevin and I, we read a lot of history and a lot of politics. So a lot of times a novel is kind of like a, almost like a deviation from form for us because we read a lot of history and politics for pleasure as well as for the podcast. But this was definitely a novel well worth picking up and reading. And I was looking forward to it. And maybe next month on the pod, I'll be reviewing the sequel. So Awesome. And uh, Kevin, if you don't mind, I think I'm going to take our listeners out this month. I got something to Sounds say. Sounds good. So folks, I want to talk about music. As the great Louis Armstrong once said, music is life itself. And when I think back to all the music that I've consumed in my life, I can really only think of two songs that I know will stick with me for my entire life. And those are Viva La Vida by Coldplay and Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. In Viva La Vida, what, one of the big reasons why I like it so much is that there's something about that image of a formerly powerful leader who, for some reason, I always picture to be Napoleon, who's now powerless and deeply lonely walking the streets that he used to own. It just it just does something for me. I really like that. And then, of course, Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, what's there to really say about that song that hasn't already been said? I mean, I would say it's hard to even call it a song, really. It's multiple songs in one. And in my mind, it's a testament to just how close we can get to the Almighty when we use our voices, pluck a few strings, hit a few keys, and bang on some shit. And I believe that there's actually a connection between these two songs. The one imagines a leader, and the other song opens with, is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? And for you, if you're imagining a life not being precedent, it's the real life. If you're imagining life being what the man in Viva La Vida once was, perhaps, I don't know, the president, that's just a fantasy. 
Before you head out, feel free to subscribe and rate us. Leave a friendly comment on the way out. It really helps the podcast when you do. And if you enjoy what we're doing, you can find our Twitter or Instagram in the description below. We'll keep you updated about the show, and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old-fashioned memes. Follow us on Facebook as well if you're a Facebook person. Just type The Almost Presidents Podcast into that search bar. And lastly, you can write into the show. Our Gmail is thealmostpresidentspodcast at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description.